Colossians chapter 3. If you could turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I have spent the last uh, several weeks preparing for a series uh, intend to start next week, uh, hoping to uh, work through the issue of uh, homosexuality and uh, wanting to address some of the challenges that, the, uh, that believers are facing at this moment in history. And so um, most of my efforts have, uh, in the last few weeks have been aimed in that direction. And so this morning, uh, we're going to preach a message uh, that I preached six years ago, right? So uh, you might remember it. Uh, I assume you do. Uh, but uh, but uh, we're going to talk this morning about the importance of singing in the, in the church when we, when we gather. And uh, it's helpful for us to return to this, to this topic from time to time because it's one of those why we do what we do kind of sermons, which is always helpful to, to revisit so that we're, we're clear on what's uh, expected of the New Testament church when we gather to sing. But I'd like to begin this morning by reading an account that may or may not be true. Uh, I found it on the internet, if that lends any credibility uh, to the story. An old farmer went to the city one weekend and attended the big city church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the farmer, it was good. They did something different, though. They sang praise choruses instead of hymns. Praise choruses, asked the wife. What are those? Ah, they're okay. They're sort of like hymns, only different, the farmer said. Well, what, what's the difference, asked the wife. The farmer explained, well, It's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be a hymn. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 (laughs) the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, 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 they're in the corn. Then I repeated it three times. That would be a praise chorus. Well, wouldn't you know that that farmer's little church had a visitor from the big city that same Sunday? He went home to his wife, and she asked him how it went. And he said, oh, it was okay, except they don't sing choruses, they sing hymns. She asked, what's a hymn? And he said, well, it's like a chorus, only different. He said, well, what do you mean? He explained, well, if I was to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, but say it like this, Oh, Martha, dear, Martha, hear the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear to this glorious truth. For the way of the animals who can explain, there in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's sun or his rain, unless from the mild corn they are fenced. 
Yea, those cows in glad, rebellious delight have loosed their shackles, their warm pens eschew. Yea, goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all, my sweet corn, are now destined to chew. (laughs) Martha, look to that bright day when earth is reborn, and I shall not see those cows in my corn. That would be a hymn. Now, we come to this subject, and we come to worship the Lord with, with various backgrounds and experiences when it comes to singing in the church. Maybe you're a big city chorus singer, or maybe you're a small town hymn singer. Maybe you're a hand raiser, maybe you're a hymn book holder. But whatever the case, as we gather, we are shaped by our experiences and, and, and preferences about music in the church. My intent this morning is not to to really solve the worship wars that have been raging for decades or even speak so much about the individual preferences as it is to turn our attention to the Scriptures and to remind us of the priority that the Scriptures place on singing in the gathered congregation. And what I want to do is flesh out some of those implications of what we see in our passages, in our inner passage this morning. I was recently on uh, vacation and uh, in a different state and had the chance to visit uh, a different church. And to put it kindly, the worship service was different. Uh, but it wasn't the, the, the differentness that, that bothered me. Okay? I'm okay with, with different, but it was that behind the difference was a philosophy of worship that at best was lacking, but at worst was actually counterproductive to building up people in the faith. In fact, probably the thing that unsettled me the most as I attended the service was the absence of, of prayer, the absence of the presence of the Word, and, and, and no sense of the weightiness of God in the service. But if my visit was helpful, it was helpful because it helped me to step back and think, okay, well, what would someone think if they attended a worship service at Maranatha? What do we communicate about God? And what do we communicate about prayer? And what do we communicate about the Word and its centrality when, when, in the way that we structure our worship service? It was also helpful for me because I was reminded of the importance of, of, of not assuming not assuming that we all have a, a shared philosophy of, 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 of worship, but rather the importance of, of, of taking the time and opening the scriptures and to teaching of what the Bible says about music in the gathered church. Now, as we approach this topic, I, I don't in any way want to give the impression that the way we do things is the only way there is to, to do it. Okay? We have never and have not arrived at, at a perfect worship service. Far from it. In fact, there are probably many, many ways where we need to improve and sharpen the way we worship together as a church. And there are probably no, numbers of things we could learn from other churches and the way that, that they do things. So we, we come to our services and we hold certain convictions, but we always want to be learning and we always want to be evaluating to see if what we do is most biblical and helpful for, for us as we worship the Lord. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to walk through this. Uh, first, consider what the New Testament says about singing in the church. And then from there, I want to turn briefly to church history 
and then finish with some practical observations about singing. Okay, so let's first turn our attention to the importance of singing in the church as emphasized here in the New Testament. Okay, our passage is in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. What you'll notice is from our scripture reading passage, there's a parallel passage from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 20. Okay? I want you to listen to them both as I, as I read them. You can follow along there in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 16. Here we have in verse 16, it says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now listen to the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look primarily at verse 16 of Colossians 3, but I'll I'll tie in Ephesians chapter 5 as well as we go through our passage. Now, four points this morning from from this passage, four things that the New Testament says about singing from this passage. First of all, number one, singing is the byproduct of a transformed life. Singing is the byproduct of a transformed life. And one of the things that stands out to me about this passage is, is its location in the broader context of the book of, of Colossians. And the same could be said about Ephesians 5 in its, in its context, okay? Now, typically what Paul does in his letters is he begins with the doctrinal truths concerning our relationship with Christ. And then he moves into practical implications for our life Uh, based on the foundation of those gospel truths. So what Paul does here in chapter 3 is he references what we are in Christ because of salvation several times, and then he he follows that by a statement of what that means for our lives. Okay, so look back to the beginning of the chapter. In verse 1, he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, okay, this is what you are, If you're a believer, you've been raised with Christ. Then he says this, seek the things that are above. Okay, this is then what it means for your life. He does something similar in verses 2 and 3. He says, set your minds on things that are above. Okay, that's what you have become because this is what you are. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Okay, he goes on in verse 5 and he says, put to death therefore. And the therefore goes back to this is what you are. So then this is what you should become. Put to death what is earthly in you. Okay? And then in verses 7 and 8, he says, if in, in these things you once walked, okay, this is what you were, but now you're different when you were living in them, but now you must put on, or now you must put them all away. Okay, so when a person comes to Christ in repentance and faith, his life is changed. He's no longer or he, he's, he's, he's not only freed from sin's penalty, but he's also freed from sin's power. And he begins then to put off the old patterns of life and put on the, the new patterns of life. He puts off things like the passage talks about here, immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry, anger, lying, and, and many other things. And he's to add to his life certain virtues. 
And these are in this passage as well. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. But the interesting thing about this passage is that one of the virtues that the new believer is to put on or or add to his life is this. Singing. Singing. If your life has been transformed by the power of the gospel, then you are a singer. Singing, according to Scripture, then it's, it's not about talent, and it's not about ability, but it is a byproduct of a transformed life. Now, continuing on in verse 16, he says that our singing is specifically the result of this, having the word of Christ dwell in you. Okay, now this is a reference, the word of Christ, a reference to Scripture. And as we're exposed to God's word, through reading it, through studying it, through, through the teaching and preaching of the Word, as the Word begins to grip our hearts, that's what it means to, to dwell in us richly, our affections begin to change, and our love for Christ begins to increase. And one of the results of that in this passage is that we will sing praise to His name. So we might say it this way, Word-saturated people are singing people. Now, on a more technical note, okay, you've probably noticed that there's a difference between this verse and the parallel passage of Ephesians. Okay, this verse says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In Ephesians 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the question is, is there a difference between the word dwelling in you and, and, and being filled with the, the Holy Spirit? And I think the answer is that there's not really a difference. Okay, Paul's using this expression to say essentially the, the same thing from two different angles. Okay? I like the, word, the way one author describes it. He says this, The word in the heart and mind is the handle by which the Spirit works. Okay, so for the believer to have the word of Christ dwelling in him implies that the Spirit is taking the word and, and sanctifying him. Okay, so now let's drive this point home, this first point from verse 16. So let's be clear. If you're a believer, you should be committed to singing praise to God. Now, it's possible that you're a believer and you're not filled with the Spirit or the Word of Christ isn't dwelling richly in your heart and therefore you're not singing praise to God. But if this is the case, let me remind us that singing for the believer is not optional. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, is we can't refuse to sing any more than we can refuse any of these other virtues that are found in chapter 3. Right? So when we come through chapter 3 and we, we come to this, this, this verse where it says that we're to put off immorality, we can't say, well, that, that, I don't really care, that's, that's really not for me. We can't opt out of it. When we come to verse 9 and it says, do not lie to one another, we can't be like, well, yeah, that's, that's for someone else. And so it would follow then, logically, that when we come to verse 16, and it says that believers are to sing with thanksgiving, we can't say, yeah, I'd rather not. I'd rather not participate. Okay? Because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a byproduct of a transformed life. When we don't sing wholeheartedly to God with our fellow believers, then we're either showing we're not filled with the Spirit, or maybe even worse, we're showing that our life hasn't been transformed 
by the power of the gospel. Now you might say, well, this sounds a little bit strong. Do I really need to sing? Okay. But this is just part of the sanctification process, right? As we go through our journey, we are exposed to areas where we might be falling short. And sanctification is the process of, right? I see that, I repent, and I change my life to walk in a way that the Scripture ordains. So if you're not a singer, well, just repent and sing. It's, the commands aren't, aren't, this is one of the easier commands that Jesus gives uh, if you follow him. So we see, first of all, the genuine, spirit-filled, word-centered believers sing wholeheartedly to God because it's a byproduct of salvation. Now, secondly, we see this in the passage, that singing is given for the edification of one another. Look at verse 16, uh, and it notice to whom we are to sing. We are to sing to one another. And Ephesians 5.19 says we're to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So our singing is to be done to one another. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that we, we call someone up during the week and we say, you know what, the Lord's really laid this song on my heart. And I, I would love to, to sing it for you. Okay? Probably the only context in which that's appropriate is, is on someone's birthday. Right? So my, my siblings and I, we have this tradition where you call someone on their birthday and then before they can even say anything, you sing, happy birthday, the whole song. And they have to sit and endure listening to you sing the whole song. So one time I, I called my sister Julie, and I, I sang happy birthday to her, the whole song. And she says, Joey, it's Joy's birthday. <laughs> and I was like, are you serious? So now to this day, I call the wrong sister on the birthday, and I sing happy birthday with all of my heart, um, even though it's not their birthday. Okay, so maybe that's appropriate. But that's not really what this passage is talking about. This passage is referencing primarily the gathered assembly. Okay? When God's people gather and worship together, they are edifying and they are encouraging one another through song. Okay? So when we gather, we're being taught as we sing and we're being admonished or encouraged as we sing. Okay? So notice those two words in verse 16 teaching and admonishing, okay? This happens as we sing. So when we just think about that word teaching. In, in singing, we rehearse the truths of the gospel to one another. So when we sing truths like this, not the labors of my hand can fulfill thy law's demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Okay, we're teaching one another about the blessed truths of the gospel as we sing together. We also, we, we, we are teaching others about the, the Christian life. Okay, we're, we're encouraging one another not to buy into the lie that this world has it all for us, but, but we're reminded to, to follow Christ. So we sing songs like, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, than riches untold, than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. One of the blessings of the congregation is you have younger believers who sing with older believers, and and older believers get to to, to unpack that example and encourage them not to buy into the lies of this world and the lusts of the flesh, but to follow Jesus with with their whole heart. And and, and we're we're teaching each other as as we sing. But notice, secondly, that our singing should also admonish or 
it's admonish really just a strong word for encourage. Now, sometimes this leans more toward a warning, but in this case, I think it's more toward a positive encouragement, okay? When we sing, we should encourage one another. And that's what our singing does, right? As you, as you sit next to, to brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through trials, you're singing phrases like this. Day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Or when you sit next to someone who has just lost a loved one, you sing a phrase like this, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. And those are deeply encouraging moments as we gather with brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the things I try to do when I sing is as I think about the people around me and how the words that we're singing might be ministering to them in this particular context. So it was just a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago, that it was announced that the Sanders' son was going to be on hospice or was on hospice and would be passing soon. I remember that Sunday morning we sang these words, While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Did you see the the encouragement that singing together brings to to people in, in times of difficulty? Thirdly, we see this, that singing has variety. Okay, look at verse 16 again, and you see this. Paul says, we're to sing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms here, no doubt, is reference to the Hebrew collection of the psalms, sometimes called the, the Old Testament hymn book, if you will. Uh, hymns were songs of praise written by the early church, and it's likely that Paul himself even quoted early hymns and put them in his letter. So one example of this might be back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, when he says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And you can see how that has sort of a musical element to it as you work down from verses 15 to, to verse 20. The other category he gives here, psalms, hymns, is is spiritual songs. And we don't know exactly what spiritual songs were in this context. They may have been songs of personal testimony that that people would sing about their their own life. But these were the types of songs that were sung as the early church gathered. Now, we don't want to press these these too hard in in terms of of we need to sing a psalm and then then a hymn and then a spiritual song. But, But Paul's saying this is the type of singing that should exist in the church as we gather. Now, it's interesting, some churches have advocated only for the the singing of the psalms. And they would be maybe from a more strict Reformed tradition. Um, And and this was the view of of the Reformer John Calvin. And he believed that the gathered church should sing from the words of Scripture. And so uh, he even created the, the, the Geneva Psalter, came out of his ministry, which is a collection of psalms put to, to music. But you have to remember about Calvin's view of worship. He came out of a church, the Roman Catholic Church, that had all kinds of extra-biblical traditions. And as he's crafting then the new Reformed way of worship, he wants to hold as closely to Scripture as he can because of all these other elements that had been, that had been uh, gathered. Now, I, I wouldn't agree with Calvin here, but I, I think we can respect his desire to hold the worship of, of God 
closely to the, to the Scriptures. Now, Paul says here we're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. I think he's showing that there's latitude for, for other songs to be done in, in, the, in the gathered assembly. But I think most importantly, what he's highlighting here is what's different here from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the Old Testament, there seemed to be a lot of focus on choirs and instruments and, and, and singing. But in the New Testament, the, the primary focus seems to be on the voice of the gathered assembly. Okay? It's not that instruments are, are wrong, but, but it's, it's that the, the focus is on the gathered assembly singing. And that's the highlight of the musical worship is when the believers lift their, their voices in praise to God. And so Paul's emphasizing here the importance of the singing ministry in the church. Now, lastly, we see this, that singing is to be done with a thankful heart. One of the stranger things I have ever experienced was the time that I was asked to be a pallbearer for a man who I had never met at this, at this funeral. I was visiting, uh, my wife and I were visiting family, and it was Sunday, so we went to our church service, and then we went over to this funeral, uh, which was a, a friend of the family. And as upon entering the, entering the, the, the funeral home there, the, the funeral director asked if, if I would be a pallbearer. And my first thought was, well, is it a requirement to know the deceased? Uh, can anyone just show up and, and do this job? So I reluctantly agreed, uh, but what, what got me this unexpected position is it was more of a casual environment, this particular funeral, and I was dressed in church clothes, and so I looked like I would fit the part to, uh, to serve as a pallbearer. But you can imagine uh, the, the awkwardness of standing before friends and family and they're saying, who's this guy? And I'm saying, who's this guy? You know, I there's not really any, any connection that's, that's going on there. And this is, this is well, it's a tough role. So I want you to know that I, I did fill my role with honor and dignity. Uh, I even faked to, to shed a tear. No, I, I didn't. I didn't do that. Okay. All right. But I was, I was happy to help and, and, uh, and, and serve as best, as best I could. Now, the reason I share that experience, if you can just picture me in, in all the awkwardness of it, I came across this quote in, in reading. It says this. If you were to watch some people sing in church, it looks like they have been caught at a stranger's funeral. When some people sing in church, it looks like they have no idea who they're singing about or why they're singing to him in the first place. For some people, singing is just a necessary evil to get to the preaching, and so they painfully endure it. But friends, that's not the picture we see painted in Scripture, is it? Notice verse 16 again. As it describes the way believers are to sing, it says we're to sing with thankfulness in your heart to God. So singing is, is, enables us to lift our voice as an expression of thanksgiving to God for what He has done. And when we don't sing as we ought, we are robbing God of, of thanksgiving that he deserves. So, in, in tying these four things together, let's ask these questions. Do you sing with thanksgiving, or do you go through the motions with your minds disengaged and your affections unmoved by the truth you're singing? Do you sing out, or do you just kind of mumble so that you don't draw any attention to yourself? Do you sing with joy, 
over your salvation and what God has done. If other people watched you sing, would they be convinced that you mean what you sing? Or would they see a disconnect between what you claim to believe and what you sing and how you sing? Would they be convinced that you are a believer? So this is what we learn in Colossians, okay? Our singing is to be a reflection of the fact that our hearts have been transformed by the gospel. Our singing teaches and encourages our fellow believers as we sing together. Our singing has variety, and our singing is to be done with thankful hearts. Now, let me take this time and turn to a few minutes to reflect on singing in the history of the church. And the reason I turn to the history of the church is because I think you would categorize our worship services here at Maranatha as traditional. And by traditional, I'm not referring to a certain style of worship per se, because, but by traditional, I, I, I want to say this, I don't want to give the impression, or we don't want to give the impression as we worship, that we're the first ones to ever thought about how worship should be done in the church. We, we're not looking to be creative. We're not looking to be innovative in the way we worship. Rather, we want to build, listen carefully, we want to build on the traditions of generations that have come before us. We're not the first ones to think about how we should worship God. And so to be traditional is to, to look back to, to the scriptures and the, and the long history of the church as, as churches have thought through how to worship the Lord. Now, it might seem that a, a strong emphasis on singing began with the early church and then continued right through to our present day, but that's not what we find in history. In fact, a bit of historical perspective might help us appreciate the privilege we have to sing together. So for a thousand dark years of church history, so from like 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., the church in general didn't sing. So shortly after the New Testament times until the Reformation, what music the church had was usually performed by professionals, and I'm broadly painting or broad brushing here, but it was performed by, by professionals, and then the music that was presented couldn't be really understood or appreciated by the church. You remember, if you're familiar with things like Gregorian, Gregorian chants. In most cases, the people sat and listened and didn't participate. But listen, in the Reformation, when the Bible came back, singing came back with it. Martin Luther and the other reformers, they, they gave priority to singing in the, in the gathered church. And, and they wrote many of the hymns that we still sing today because of the emphasis they put on, on singing. Now, as the Reformation continued to, to restructure the worship of the church, there became a debate among the Reformers about what things were appropriate for the worship service and what things were not appropriate for the worship service. Obviously, as I said before, all of them came out of the same, same church where traditions and unbiblical elements had been added to the worship. And so now here they are, freshly thinking about, okay, what are we going to do as we gather and we worship the Lord together? And so there arose this debate between what's called the regulative principle and the normative principle. Okay? And the regulative principle stated this. The church's gathered worship should consist only of those elements shown in Scripture, either by command or by example. Okay, so in this case, the worship service is regulated by Scripture. Okay, so we only do those things in our gatherings that the Scripture commands us to do or gives example of doing in the, in the early church. 
the normative principle was, was different. It stated that in addition to doing what the Scriptures command in worship, that the gathered church may include other forms and practices not explicitly forbidden in the Scripture. Okay, so the regulative principle said we only do those things that the Scripture commands us to do or gives example. The normative principle said, well, in addition to doing those things, we can do other things as long as the Scriptures don't forbid them. And this debate arose among the, the early Reformers. And that's why to this day, if you attend like a Lutheran church who held to the normative principle, you'll, still, you'll see a lot of other added elements that aren't part of a, a typical, uh, typical Reformed gathering. But in a sense, the same debate exists today in our churches. What is appropriate for the church when they gather together to worship the Lord? Can we have videos? Can we have dramas and plays? As long as the scriptures don't forbid those things. I'm not sure how the scripture would forbid a video, but, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Can we, can we have other things in the worship service? It's not that we, I take a side, per se, on this particular debate, but what I appreciate about the regulative principle, okay, that we only do those things and that the Scripture commands us or gives example of doing, what I appreciate about the regulative principle is that, first of all, I'd say this, that, that if the Bible's our authority and it's sufficient for, for how we do things, and it tells us, and gives example of what we should do on the Lord's Day when we gather, then I, I appreciate the fact that if you hold to the regulative principle, the, the scriptures are probably most closely the, the authority. Okay, so following the, the regulative principle, it, it removes the burden and the temptation of, of finding something creative and innovative to do when we worship. Okay, that as we gather week by week by week by week, if we had to be innovative and creative, that would eventually kill us. Okay. I, I know there was a, uh, a church, a, a large, sort of very different from our type of church, and they had a, a pastor of, of, I forget the exact title, but it was like a pastor of innovation. And I thought, man, that is a lot of pressure on that guy because he's walking through the halls of the church and people are thinking, I wonder what new thing he's, he's working up for, for our church. I, w- I would be stressed if I had to be the pastor of, of innovation, okay? But, but the regulative principle... It, it keeps us from having to find innovators in creative ways, right? So the scriptures tell us what we're to do as we gather. We're to pray. We're to observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're to read the scriptures. We're to preach the scriptures. And we are to, to sing. And I would add this, that, that when the church begins to look for other elements to add into its worship service, then those things that God has commanded get crowded out. Preaching has to get shorter. Prayer is sort of relegated to the side. Scripture reading sometimes becomes absent because if we're trying to put in more and more innovative things, then we don't have time for the things that God has commanded us to do. Now, if we're not careful, we can begin to think that certain, certain things are, are necessary for the church to worship. So some might think that in order to worship the Lord properly, we need an organ. Or we need better lighting to to help us worship in a more emotional way. Some people think we need a song leader. Others think we need a praise team. We need more special music. We need less special music. We need more choir. We need less choir. We need songs on the screen. We need need hymnals. And we, we, we elevate things 
to a position of necessity when it comes to worshiping the Lord. But, but a helpful test to apply to things that are essential for worship is what one author has called the catacomb test. Okay, that is, how did the early church worship when they, were, when they hid in the catacombs to worship for fear of persecution? What was necessary then for them to worship on the Lord's day? Well, did they pray? Yes. Did they read scripture? Yes. Did they break bread together? Yes. Did they preach? Yes. Did they sing? Yes. And I think when we look at what the early church did and what was, we, we, it's helpful for us to avoid making certain things necessary for the worship of the church because it limits us in our sense of, of, of what is essential to worshiping together. Now, with these thoughts in mind, let me close with a few applications and implications, implications concerning our singing in church. Okay, five things. Our singing, we want it to be theologically rich. Okay? We don't simply want to avoid songs that are inaccurate. We also want to avoid songs that barely have any content. And the reason for this is because it is more likely that you will walk out of church remembering a song than you will remember the sermon. Okay? Now, I'm not discouraged about that. I recognize that that's, that's just the reality. And so if people are remembering music, then we want them to remember truths that are doctrinally sound, that are able to carry them through the course of their Christian life. Okay, so number one, we want our music to be theologically rich. Number two, we want our singing to express various moods, not just joy. Okay? Not every experience in life is happiness. I don't have to tell you that. Okay, you know that. Not every experience of life is happiness. And as we sing, we should draw from songs that, that speak to the numerous situations and emotions that believers face. So we sing a song like this, Be still, my soul. It's reminding us, The Lord is at thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Okay, that song speaks to a, a different scenario than, than happiness. So we want our singing to express the various moods, not just joy. Number three, we want our singing to highlight the participative nature of congregational singing. So the focus of our music is on the gathered worship. Okay, It's not on what's happening on the platform, but it's what's happening in the pew that is the focus. We don't dim the lights. It's not a concert. It is God's people teaching and admonishing one another through song that is the purpose or one of the purposes for which we gather. Number four, we want our singing to unite generations, not divide them. It's a sad reality that one of the most meaningful ways that the Lord has given the church to worship him has also been one of the chief ways that Satan has used to divide the church of God. And it's my opinion that one of the most foolish decisions a church can make, and this is now I'm, I'm 
I'm just preaching now. I'm not just, okay, well, I forget the expression, but anyway, I'm stepping into areas where I'm just giving my opinion at this point. So it's my opinion that one of the most foolish decisions a church can make is to have a traditional service for the old people and a contemporary service for the young people. I like what Mark Dever says. He says, why don't you just have the Jews and the Gentiles meet separately? Okay. Such a practice not only drives division between the generations, but it also feeds a consumer mentality that the church is to do things to make me happy, that the church is to cater to my desires. But here's the reality. Not everything we sing do I like. And I'm sure not everything we sing do you like. But as a church, we're doing our best to to gather together, and sometimes we have to defer a little bit in order that we might join together as unified brothers and sisters in Christ with one voice lifting praise to the Lord. So it's okay that I don't like every song that we do, and it's okay that you don't either, because we have to, in grace, give up some of our preferences. Lastly, I'll finish this, we want our singing to be evangelistic. Okay? We want our singing to be evangelistic. Now, let me be careful here because what I, I don't want you to misunderstand this point. I'm not saying that the purpose of our gathering is to evangelize the lost. Right? We're not intending to craft our services to cater to unbelievers. Okay? That's not the purpose of the gathered worship. The Lord has given the music to the church to worship him. But when I say that our music should be evangelistic, what I mean is this, that a visitor should walk in and they should observe how we sing and they should think, wow, something about the way these people sing, God is in this place. These people care about the truths that they're singing and they sing with with passion and they sing with thanksgiving And in that sense, our music is an evangelistic testimony to any unbelievers who might be present with us. Okay? So our singing. We want to be theologically rich, express the various moods, highlight the participative nature of congregational singing, unite the generations, and be a testimony to a lost world. Okay, so what should you do with this message? Well, realize the importance of singing in the church. It's one of the primary means that God has given for us to praise him. And so we should engage with it wholeheartedly. We should sing out with thanksgiving. I would love this to be the culture that we we, we passionately sing every Sunday gathering because of what the Lord has done in our hearts. We come to him with thanksgiving. And then I think we should appreciate the music that we have and how much we're taught by the the words of of the songs that we sing. We sang this morning this line, from cowardice, defend us, from lethargy, awake. Okay? You don't get that in in some other shallow song, but it's a call for us to go forth on thine errands for the sake of, of Christ. Okay? We should appreciate the deep truths we sing, shy away from shallow and vaguely Christian music, and sing that which is rich and appreciate the rich tradition that we have. Let's pray together. Father, we're so blessed that you have given us music as a, as a means to expressing praise to you. As is often the case, man takes what good gift you have given and twists it and perverts it in ways that don't please you. 
And so, Lord, it's a great privilege to come and sing with our brothers and sisters in Christ words and songs that honor you. Let our hearts be engaged with what we sing. Let us not take the privilege for granted, the freedom that we have in our country to, to, to sing and praise. We might not all, always have those freedoms, but, freedoms, but we should sing nonetheless. Whether our freedoms are, are there or whether our freedoms are limited. Lord, we should come and we should gather and we should honor you and praise you, for you are worthy to receive our praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.